Hey, welcome this morning to Bethel Church. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here this morning, and I get the opportunity and the privilege to open God's Word with you uh, while Eric is away. Uh, I just wanted to share uh, something with you guys that I came across as I was studying the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you want to turn there. But speaking of the passage that we're going to cover this morning, uh, one of the books I was reading said this, its interpretation is highly controversial since this passage is among the most dense and difficult to understand in all of Paul's writings. The meaning of almost every clause is contested. Uh, And looking ahead to next week, the the passage that Pastor Adam is going to preach, uh, similar. Uh, And so I just personally wanted to wish Pastor Eric a fantastic trip to Boston. Um, I'm just not quite sure why he chose these two particular weeks to be gone. I'm sure it was just travel schedules and flights and things like that. Um, If you heard the story last week about his boiler breaking, clearly God was trying to tell him to stay and that he should preach this passage in next week, but... But Pastor Eric, in his fallenness, decided to go anyway. (laughs) But actually, we're going to talk about forgiveness today, so this really folds in well. Um, So I'll just say personally, I've been staring at this this passage all week, just trying to make sense of it and and try to find my way through it in in a way that that we could preach to you this morning. Um, But I just wanted to remind us of of Paul's words to Timothy about it. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, So God has something here for us this morning, and and his word is powerful, and and we're going to do our best to unleash it uh, and and let it speak into your life. Uh, But for my own benefit and for yours, uh, we're going to take a moment in prayer before we dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful that it is our guide, that, that we are not expected or required to figure this life out on our own. Um, Lord, we need to turn and look to you for your wisdom, for your guidance, to be reminded of your love, of your grace, of your forgiveness. Uh, Heavenly Father, your, your word is rich with these things. Uh, so Heavenly Father, use your word to speak to us this morning, uh, that these words of Paul would ring true in our hearts in the ways that they need to, that they would be corrective if they need to be, that they would be encouraging if they need to be, uh, that they would help us to be trained in righteousness as we all need. Uh, So Heavenly Father, I do just ask for for your help uh, and for your word to speak powerfully this morning. Um, Help me to get out of the way. Uh, In Jesus' powerful name, amen. So if you have your your Bible, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to just dive right in this morning to verse 5. And it says this, If anyone has caused grief, He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So if you've been here with us the the last couple of weeks as we've been going through 2 Corinthians, you know that that Corinth has been going through a rough patch lately. Uh, We know from the letters of Paul that we have, and we know uh, from the letters that Paul references that we don't have that 
there's been some hard things shared and some hard experiences in the church. Uh, There have been some behavioral corrections that needed to be made. Some people were living in open sin and that needed to be confronted. In addition to that, Paul and his particular role as an apostle had come under some attack from the church in Corinth. Uh, And there are some that began to question sort of what or who gave him the right to correct and instruct them. And we see in this passage that this seemed to be stirred up, this trouble, this, this doubting of his credentials and, and qualifications uh, seemed to be stirred up, at least headed up by a single individual. Uh, and you could say that this, this person was harassing Paul. You could say he was trolling Paul and, and, and questioning him uh, in front of others. But what Paul starts out doing here in verse 5 is actually helping to get the Corinthians to see that these attacks shouldn't only be a problem to Paul these attacks should be a problem to all of them as well. Now, Paul played an integral role in the founding of the church of Corinth, and and his heart was deeply connected to them, and and he served in in an apostolic role to them and as an elder and an overseer. And so what Paul's helping them realize is to insult his credibility was to call into question the spiritual credibility of the entire church there. Sort of for the same reason when you were growing up, if somebody insulted your mom or your dad, like that carried with it a, a certain weight because then that insult was then transferred to you as well. Sort of the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, so to insult mom and dad would be to take an insult personally as well. So Paul is asking the Corinthians, don't you get it that, that an insult to me is actually still an insult towards all of you? He says, you're not just standing up for me and my honor. That, that's not why uh, this needs to be put down. You, you need to stand up for yourself as well. I shouldn't be the only one offended by this. So thankfully, at, at some point, the, the church in Corinth heard that correction uh, from Paul. They realized that it was serious and that it needed to be dealt with. Uh, and we're not told exactly what the, the offense was that, that Paul is referencing here in 2 Corinthians, the correction. But from the context, it seems likely that it was these challenges to Paul's authority. But whatever it was, the behavior had reached a point that the Corinthians were called by Paul to, to discipline this individual, that that was necessary. And the Corinthian church stepped up at Paul's prompting, and it chose to discipline this individual. And, and Paul credits them uh, for following his instructions But then he lets them know that their discipline was starting to miss its intended purpose. Because discipline has a purpose. Discipline is for the purpose of rehabilitation, not for punishment. Where's my... There we go. Uh, There is a right time for discipline. Uh, And there is a right time for discipline to end as well. Uh, The Corinthians had started what was a good thing. Uh, disciplining with the, with the purpose of trying to help this individual sort of see the air of his ways. But, but once that discipline had worked and had helped change the heart of that offender, it was necessary to offer forgiveness and bring him back into good fellowship within the church. Uh, Jesus tells us in, in Matthew 18, where he's discussing church discipline, he says, the goal of discipline is restoration. Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother or sister sins again, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So that confrontation, that discipline, that rebuke is for the purpose of restoring them, uh, of rehabilitation. It is not to punish them. 
The goal is to win them back. And sometimes it may be through difficult conversations or a harsh word of truth. And, and Paul wrote harsh words when it was necessary, but we can't lose sight of the goal of discipline. Verse 7, Paul says, now it's time to forgive him and to comfort him. And, and the goal isn't to drive him off or to punish him so severely and make an example of him that nobody else would consider doing it this, the same thing. He's reminding them, this is a brother that we love. And it's time to, to remove that discipline so that he can feel that love from you all. Verse 9, he, he's proud of them. I wrote to see if you would stand the test and be obedient. He's, he's saying, good job. You, you heard what I said and, and you did it. He's thankful that they listened and that they followed through. He said, but now it's time to bring it to an end, both for his benefit and for yours as well. And this particular situation that Paul is addressing, the church is wielding too much authority in their attempts to correct him. In this situation, they, they did discipline, but they didn't know when to stop. They, they let it go for too long. Uh, I think the struggle that, that our world and, uh, is having is the courage to correct when necessary, to discipline when necessary. Our modern and American culture tends to push back against any authority uh, in our lives. And, and I would say, generally, the church has lost its role as a place where discipline occurs. I think it, it's, it's due partly to we have too casual of a connection to church, that it's something that can be dropped when it doesn't meet our needs or, or replaced if we want something different. Um, for some, the, the commitment to church only runs as deep as what the church can do uh, for them. And, and I mean that generally. I'm not, I'm not pointing out anyone in particular. Um, I would guess that a lot of people, when they're looking for a church, don't put the church's willingness to discipline as very high on their shopping list, Right? We shop and look for a church based on our perceived needs and wants. And uh, I would have loved to hear the Apostle Paul's conversation about church shopping and, and church hopping. I think he would have had some things to say. Uh, the body of Christ was never intended to be as transient as it has turned out to be. Uh, to get the most out of the community, out of the body of Christ, we need to be committed to that community. And it's like an exercise routine. I can go for a 10-mile run once every six weeks, and what good is that going to have in my overall health, right? Other than a few blisters, not much. But much like regular exercise is necessary for it to be effective, regular involvement in the church and the community is necessary for it to play the role in our lives that it was intended to play. It's troubling that we live in an era where people find it easier to switch churches than they do cell phone plans. And that's not right. Paul's correcting the Corinthians here and, and, and helping them realize that they were abusing their authority that they had on this individual. And we are warned in verse 11 of the downside when a church gets church discipline wrong. Uh, and that can either be through over-aggressive discipline, like we're seeing here in Corinth, or a church's uh, avoiding of discipline when it's necessary. He says, when we don't discipline with love for the right reasons, it plays right into the hands of Satan and allows him to drive a wedge into the church. Uh, Paul then moves on, and in this passage, he's going to jump all over the place. And here in verse 12 and 13, he moves on talking about his travels and about the restlessness that he was experiencing. Verse 12, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. 
So he's bringing the, the conversation to an end here that we started the, the week previous, uh, talking about the change in travel schedules and travel plans. And um, they were trying to use this as an insult against Paul and, and, and question his authority. And, um, but he's saying that he went to Troas and, and he actually found good ministry opportunities there. And knowing Paul, you would have thought that that would have led him to stay there. And even with good opportunities in front of him, he was unsettled and found that he needed to move on and look for Titus. And so he pushes on to Macedonia. Uh, And one thing that as I was kind of thinking through this passage and just kind of reminding myself, um, there are a lot of things when it comes to travel and communication that we now start to take for granted. And we forget what it must have been like, the anxiety and concern and trouble that would have went with, with travel and plans with other people in the first century. Um, I get terrified at the thought of traveling to a new place without my phone. I'm not alone, right? Okay. Did you know, this might be, this is, it might be news to some of you, did you know that people used to travel before the invention of Google Maps? Did you know that? <laughs> And might I ask, what were you people thinking? How? I remember a trip growing up. We were in California visiting some family, and, and my mom was driving, and we were going to drive from Sacramento to the city of Oakland to go watch an Oakland A's baseball game. And I remember that my uncle gave her directions, and my mom wrote them out on a piece of paper. And, and as we're driving the highways of California, following these handwritten instructions, and to tell you how well it went, we ended up in San Francisco. And we were not going to watch the Giants that day. And yet now I get to travel to the other side of the world to to work on a missions trip in the Czech Republic in the summer. And while I'm there, I whip out my phone and I can call my girls and wish them good morning and and know where I'm traveling and have instant communication. And I think it's easy to read Paul's, you know, Paul was unsettled and just, okay, you know. How terrifying, the lack of, of luxuries that he had that we now sort of take for granted. And he just, in his heart, he felt that he needed to keep looking. He needed to go find Titus. And we see his heart here as a pastor, as a friend, as a mentor. He loved and he deeply cared for people and, and created deep personal connections with them. And we, we know from scripture that he had a particular kinship and relationship with Titus. Paul writes in his letter to Titus in the first chapter, he describes him as my true son in our common faith. So Titus was very significant to him. Paul wasn't just flying by the seat of his pants, going wherever he felt. He was motivated by love of a dear friend. And after that, Paul changes topics again, and and we we see that we're going to be invited to join into Christ's triumph, starting uh, here in verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. So here's what's really helpful to me as I read this passage. I think it'll be helpful for you. The triumphal procession, that phrase that's used here that Paul is describing, is not probably the triumphal procession that that I would assume comes into most of our minds. Uh, when I hear that term, triumphal procession, what comes into my mind is the thought of a, of a victory parade for a team that just won a championship. The Super Bowl is about to happen in a couple weeks, and there will be a parade in honor of that for the winning team. Um, I, I was thinking about that idea this week, and, and a, a story came to mind from last year's Super Bowl, and I looked and found uh, a news article, and, and this was the title. 
Philadelphia smears Crisco on lampposts to deter Super Bowl fans. How did we come to this is the title. This city, they were just about to win the Super Bowl, and and the city was uh, trying to help protect people, both from themselves and from damaging property. Uh, And so in an effort to to curb the celebration, they greased up the light poles so people couldn't climb them. Um, Which is funny enough by itself, but then I found this article published three days later, Eagles fans still climbing up poles despite being greased by police. So, (laughs) you know, you do your best, but... That's an American celebration. That's an American idea of a triumphal procession is, uh uh-oh, better grease up the phone pole. Like, that's not the idea that would have been in the forefront of the mind of the Corinthians that Paul was writing to. Paul was describing something very unique, a a Roman triumphal procession. Uh, And it was this very elaborate event that drew an enormous crowd, though the whole town came out to see it. And in order for a a triumphal procession to to be warranted, it it had to meet certain criteria. It had to have, uh, you had to have slain 5,000 enemy combatants in a single battle. So you had to defeat and kill a lot of people. Uh, And it needed to expand the territory of Rome. It needed to make uh, the Roman nation bigger. Uh, And it needed to have occurred on foreign soil. You didn't get credit for playing defense. You didn't get a party for defense. And you didn't get a party for a civil war. So you had to be making Rome bigger, stronger, more dominant in the world. So the way that this would happen when it was warranted is this big parade would come through the the main streets there of Rome. uh, And first they came in certain orders. First came the captive prisoners, those that had been defeated in war and stripped of their weapons and stripped of their armor and and stripped of their dignity and and led down the main street there. Some of them being perhaps led to slavery, many of them likely uh, being led to their execution. Uh, Then after that, the spoils from battle, your your, your plunder, your loot uh, came behind them. And then they even had artists that would draw up big canvas pictures and, and pottery and different art representing the victorious battle. So you felt like you got to sort of see uh, what was happening. And then after that, a a white oxen would be led on its way to the temple that would be sacrificed in victory there. Uh, And then sort of the highlight, the the, the main event of the procession was the victorious general in his purple tunic, riding in a chariot pulled by four horses, you knew who was the star of this party. And behind him, his, his... Lieutenants and generals underneath him and his, clo- his eldest sons would ride behind him. And then following behind that would be the Roman army dressed in their togas, walking through the streets shouting, Yo triumphe, triumph, and singing songs in honor and in victory to their general. So that's when Paul says those two words, Roman procession, triumphant procession, that's what everybody there would have come to their mind. It's a very vivid scene that everybody would have been aware of. So let's read verse 14 again with that context in mind. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. So it's easy to see in this illustration the role of Christ Uh, the triumphant general who was victorious, and in this case over sin and death, his achievement is being celebrated for all to see. But where is Paul in this procession? 
Remember at the start where I said this is a pretty debated passage. Even the different translations have sort of weighed in on, on how they translate the language then can paint some pretty different pictures here. If you have the NASB in front of you, uh, it says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So there the triumph is accentuated. King James Version, going old school. Thanks be unto God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. So there, the triumph. The ESV says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And the NIV, which we're teaching out of this morning, uh, says this, the thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So as Paul's writing this, does he see, where does he see himself in the parade? Is, is he a captive at the front being led to his death? Or does he see himself as part of the, the victorious army behind being led in triumph with his conquering general. So you see the different translations kind of push you in, in different directions as you're reading them. The King James Version and the NASB, they lean towards the, the conquering army. Christ leads us in triumph. And the NIV that, that we're using this morning clearly leans towards Paul as a captive. And the ESV rides the fence and it acknowledges that Paul is being led, but it doesn't place him in either particular location. And so this is one of those that I think, looking at the language and the context, reasonable minds can differ uh, on the interpretation. Uh, contextually, it works to see Paul as someone celebrating and sharing in Christ's triumph, uh, but it also works to see Paul as a willing captive of Christ. Uh, several times elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we see Paul refer to himself as a prisoner of Christ, and we see his life considered forfeited to follow the will of the Lord. And there are times when Paul is a prisoner of Christ, eventually leading to his death. I think when we read it, the one that's more fun to read uh, are the ones where we uh, feel led into triumph, where we get to join in the celebration. Uh, that one sits a little easier on our hearts. Um, but I would tell you after my time of study, I lean towards the captive illustration uh, and interpretation personally. Uh, I think when we, what we know about Paul, that he saw his life as forfeited. He saw his life as already given over to the Lord, and he was being led wherever the Lord took him, even if that was to the point of death. Uh, he wanted God's glory, whatever uh, the, the end result and so that, that's my take on it. You're, you're welcome to study it uh, and, and see where you fall uh, as well. But the main point, the main emphasis of this is Christ's triumph. Uh, and that sets up this wonderful discussion about aromas in verse 15 that we'll pick up. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death and to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? So part of what happened during this triumphant procession uh, was that the, the people that came to watch would bring incense and sort of burn it there along the side of the road. So as you entered into town, the, the smell of this festival and the incense would have overwhelmed you. And to some, to, to the Roman citizens and to the soldiers, it was the sweet smell of victory. But to others, the, the conquered nation and the conquered army, it may be the last smell that they experience before their life is taken from them. Same aroma, same smell, evoking a completely different response. And we have lots of things like this in, in our lives. To say that we live in a polarized world is quite a bit of an understatement. Um, 
One of these areas of polarization that's really close to my heart is the sport of soccer. Uh, I don't know if I've shared this with you guys before or every time that I preach, but I like soccer. Um, I think it's an amazing game. And I've watched so many wonderful games and there's so many talented players and there's such tension and such skill involved and so much drama. And many of my favorite sporting memories as a big sports fan are related to to big soccer games. But there are other people, and randomly, for the sake of argument, we'll call this person Zach, uh, that thinks that soccer is a game for softies, where all people do is roll around on the ground pretending that their leg is broken. It's not that he's wrong. It's just that he's wrong, right? Okay. We can watch the exact same game and come to completely different conclusions. And so Paul is telling us that the idea of Christ as the conqueror, as a triumph, is met with two extremely opposite responses. We're not given a third choice. Paul makes a a similar statement in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In a world that wants to argue for sort of relative truth, Paul says that couldn't be more wrong. When you picture Jesus, do you picture your Savior, or do you picture something else? Paul's making a point here that there isn't a long list of options. We don't get to ride the fence. We don't get to be half in and half out. He says, Jesus is the litmus test that reveals the true nature of a person's heart. There are few better questions that reveal your standing than the question of this. Who is Jesus to you? How does your heart respond to the call of Christ? Moving on in in verse 17, Paul is defending a cheap shot. Uh, And I actually mean that with the pun intended. Verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Now, one of the accusations against Paul and his apostolic authority is that the Corinthians weren't supporting him financially. Paul was preaching and ministering and serving them free of charge. Now, elsewhere, uh, Paul defends that people that invest their lives ministering for the gospel, that they have a reasonable right to be compensated. So that's not the issue that he's bringing up here. Uh, In this situation, he decided not to be supported by the Corinthians because he didn't want them to question his motives. He didn't want them to think that he was doing it for his own benefit. He wanted them to know that what he did was for their benefit. Uh, And they were trying to turn this on him and and make the the case that a cheap preacher makes for a cheap gospel. And Paul responded back that said, an expensive gospel means a shady preacher. We've all heard different stories of of pastors uh, profiting and making an exorbitant amount of money in their ministries. Uh, It turns your stomach when you read an article in the newspaper about a preacher that says that God wants him to buy his fourth private jet, and you wish that you're reading The Onion and not USA Today. So Paul's saying, who really has your best interest in mind here, guys? They're calling into question my gospel saying that it's cheap. I'm calling into question their gospel saying that it's not. Who has your best interest in mind? 
Me or the guy that's charging you two sheeps per sermon? And at a certain point, you got to wonder if Paul just has had it with the Corinthian church, the, the, the frustration, and, and why does he keep going? Are they, are they worth the headache? Does he have anything to show for his work there? And I, I think we begin to see some encouragement here in, in chapter 3, picking up in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So if you were traveling uh, back then, the quickest way to gain some credibility uh, would be to bring a a letter of recommendation from somebody significant. Uh, We actually see this in Paul's story. Uh, If you're reading in the book of Acts, before Paul recognized Jesus as Savior, he was actively working to destroy Christianity. And it says that Paul took with him some letters from the high priest so that he could carry out his authority as he went to different towns. Uh, And so he used these letters of recommendation to support his authority as as he went to different places. Now, there are times when a a letter of recommendation or a a, a reference makes sense. Um, Here at Bethel, we require a background check with references if you want to work with kids. It's part of our policy here. Uh, We are a a family-friendly church, and we're blessed that that God has brought many families with young kids here, and we want to provide a safe environment for them to learn about the Lord and for you to learn about the Lord. And so we have a background policy and, and we're proud of that. And, and we stand by it. We, we want to know who's working with your kids. We want letters of recommendation uh, so that we know that we have safe people there. There's a good time for a letter of reference. So Paul's not offended by, the, by that in particular. Because there's other situations where a letter of reference seems ridiculous. Eric was leaving town this week. If he came up to me and said, hey, Mark, I want you to preach while I'm gone, but before you do, could you get me a couple of letters of recommendation uh, for you before you preach? Uh, That sounds crazy. Uh, I mean, I could see Eric doing it because he likes to mess with me, but it wouldn't make... It wouldn't make any sense. We've been working together for over 10 years. We've known each other for, for longer than that. He, he knows what he's going to get when he asks me to preach, for better or for worse. Well, maybe he doesn't exactly know quite what he's going to get, but I have a pretty decent track record of avoiding major heresies when I preach. So, he... And it would be offensive if he asked me for a letter of recommendation after working together this long, Right? Paul is saying, guys, it's a little offensive that you're asking me for a letter of recommendation. I don't have to vouch for myself. You guys know me. He says, in fact, you guys are my best reference. You guys are my defense. How do you know if the gospel that's being preached is any good? And the answer from the Bible that we're told is that you check the fruit. Jesus, as he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he gave a strong warning uh, against false teachers. In Matthew 7, in verse 15, he says this. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. 
So Paul says, I don't need paper. I don't need a letter of reference. He says, the state of your hearts, of the Corinthian people, is his best defense. He says, you guys are my fruit. But we don't want to think that Paul is, is conceited and full of himself and puffed up, and, and so he, he brings it back here uh, in verse 4. And we see that Paul finds this confidence, not in himself, not in his own ability, but he finds this confidence in Christ. Verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, Paul comes from a a long line of servants of God who in their own strengths and abilities weren't up for the task. Uh, and this isn't because God couldn't find anybody qualified, couldn't find anybody good enough to do it, so he, so he had to pick from the, the dregs of the barrel. If you look throughout all of God's story, he routinely picks people that, that have some troubles, that, that don't have it all together. A couple examples that quickly came to mind, I thought of Jacob, a liar and a con man. Moses, we were just in... Uh, the Old Testament a while back, Moses struggled with words, kind of had a bit of a temper if you know the start of his story. Peter, he was known for open mouth, insert foot. These are not perfect people, and Paul recognizes that, that he comes from that line as well. Paul has no problem pointing to the Corinthians as his reference because he knows that it's not his work that changes their lives. He says, that's God's job. As a preacher, as as somebody that that chose to go into uh, full-time ministry, I will tell you it was not a a decision entered into lightly. And and there's a verse here from Paul that I'll share with you that is one of the reasons why I even felt it was remotely possible. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power." I will tell you there are few uh, more soothing passages to dwell on before you stand up here and preach. It was not the awesomeness of Paul that changed the hearts and the lives of the Corinthians. It's not the awesomeness of any particular pastor or ministry leader or Sunday school teacher that changes someone's life. I don't stand up here. I am not going to argue any one of you into the kingdom of God. That's not my job. In fact, the more flaws that I have and the more dependent that I am on Christ, the more I like it that way. That it is the power of God and by God's grace that we are able to be transformed by the word of God. And for any of us, it is by God's grace that we are allowed to help at all. Because God doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us for his glory.
And trust me when I say this, if I can do this, anyone can. It is God's power at work, not mine. I found a phrase this week in my reading that I thought really just kind of summed up this idea uh, here of of what Paul uh, is talking about, of, of what it means to have confidence in the Lord. It says this, we have sufficiency in spite of our insufficiency by the grace of God. Sufficiency in spite of our insufficiency by the grace of God. Amen? Now, my hope this morning, this is one of those passages that seems like about every two or three sentences, Paul's thrown in a new idea and we're going in a new direction. And my hope is that the word of God was able to speak to you through something here this morning. That, that it's, it's not my words or, or my preaching, but that God's word in and of itself has the power to change you, has the power to make you a new creation, has the power to make you a child of God. His word is strong. Paul knew that. And that gave him confidence as he interacted with the Corinthians because it wasn't him that they uh, needed to judge. It was God's power. Thanks for listening. Let me pray for you guys. Uh, Heavenly Father, I am thankful for your word, that, that it guides us, that it changes us, that it is your job to mold and shape and realign hearts, Lord, as they need it. God, I know what you have done in my life. I, I know the, the overhaul job that you have done in me, and I'm thankful for your grace and your mercy um, that has allowed that to happen. Heavenly Father, uh, I pray for my friends here, uh, Lord, that as they hear your word, that they will willingly open themselves up to it, to hear what you need them to hear, to speak truth where they need to hear truth, to correct where they need to hear correction, to encourage where they need to hear encouragement. Heavenly Father, thank you that you guide us, that you lead us, that you teach us. Thank you that you change us. In the powerful name of our Savior, in the powerful name of Jesus, amen.